First of all, I'm going to give us a brief opening talk. Then, if there's anything comes out of what I'm talking about that you would like to discuss, I shall leave it open for some questions and discussion. And then we'll finish off on a meditation session just to prime us for going to bed and for calming down until the morning. So this is just the opening session to really kind of acquaint you with what we're going to be doing and the kind of issues that we're going to be dealing with. And I know that quite a number of you are beginners, so I'll say some fairly basic things, and even if you are not beginners, it won't hurt to hear some of these things again. Um, because as some of my teachers used to say to me once when I'd been spending something like two years looking at one text and I got to the end of it and I said, well, where do we go now? He said, back to the beginning. <laughs> and so we're constantly, in a way, searching back to the opening questions, the beginning questions, and the legacy of those opening questions that the Buddha really gave to us. That was, in a sense, the dispensation, which was to bring to our minds a tremendous range of questions and issues which we all, in different ways have to confront in our lives. Now, as you well know, probably having read the publicity for this particular weekend, that the, one of the major issues that we're dealing with, and hopefully throwing some perspectives on, is the issue of fear. And another allied topic, in a way, which many of us suffer from, which is dread. They come as a twosome in Buddhism, fear and dread. Um, a kind of nameless anxiety that often ripples away through our lives um, and leaves us feeling often quite impotent and quite helpless in the face of it. And there's nothing we can actually give a name to in a lot of instances. Nothing we can actually point a finger and say, this is what I'm dreading, this is what I'm fearful of. A kind of nameless anxiety that comes upon us. Western society, and that is where we are, I can't be talking over these weekends, over the weekend, much about the East because we find ourselves in a Western situation. The Western world is replete, absolutely replete with problems. Um, I wouldn't like to say the East doesn't have its own problems, but we have our specific problems in the West, and a lot of those boil down to things like fear, anxiety, dread, this kind of namelessness that I actually mentioned a minute ago that runs through our lives. But it often comes in forms also of things like pain, an unsettled feeling about the way we are, the kind of not quite happy with the way things are. I'd actually like them to be otherwise. I'd like them to be different. I'd like the world to be different. I'd like it to accommodate me in all the things that I want. And one thing you can be absolutely certain of is the world won't conform to what you want. It will throw all kinds of things at you. It will throw all sorts of problems um, which you have to confront and you have to deal with. We can obviously, and this is obviously part of the nature of fear, dread what is going to happen, what the future is going to bring. Um, at the end, and this is probably one of the, I suppose, gifts of being human, is that most of us, if we've actually taken cognizance of it, will be aware that we are mortal. And so one of the big fears that many of us have to confront is the fear of death, of our mortality. 
as it's often said in the Tibetan tradition in particular, there is one thing in life which is absolutely certain, which is death. And there's one thing which is absolutely uncertain, which is when. So that is something we live in awareness of a lot of the time. And we have to deal with. But we also have to deal with our fears of ageing, our fears of loss, all of the kind of things that run through life are there as a kind of constant background, a constant backdrop. Buddhist practice and Buddhist meditation practice, which is obviously what we're going to be doing this weekend, Buddhist meditation practice is there alone to do one thing, and this is why Buddhism differs from so many other religious traditions. Not better, not worse, but different. And that is, it deals with transforming your mind. That is its sole purpose. The Buddha himself stated his teaching quite simply. He said, and I'll use the Pali Sanskrit word because actually there's no real direct translation of it. He said, I teach two things, that's all. I teach dukkha and the overcoming of dukkha. And this word dukkha is the word that's usually translated as suffering. And it might be that some of you might think you're suffering, but most of us probably wouldn't. I said to you, you're all suffering as the early Christians said about the Buddhists, Buddhists believe they would be suffering. If I said to you, you're all suffering, some of you are probably going, well, no. <laughs> I'm probably you know, not quite comfortable sitting on the floor, not used to it, um, quite a little bit unsettled about being here, perhaps for the first time, you know, not knowing how you're going to cope with silence for two days, this sort of thing. This is more of the actual nature of what this word which is usually translated as suffering usually is, dukkha. It's kind of not having the way things, not having things the way you want them to be. Again, anxiety is part of that. Fear of what is going to happen. As I so often say in teaching groups like yourself, that actually for most of us in our lives, you know, dukkha isn't suffering which seems like a very extreme end of the Richter scale. For most of us, what we would term dukkha is something like not getting the chocolate out of the box that you wanted because somebody else has eaten it. That sort of thing. Really little things in life that actually cause us to have this kind of warp and woof running through our lives of unsatisfactoriness. Things are not the way that we want them. And as you heard me say, the one thing that probably we will know is that the world will never be the way you want it to be. There'll always be something happening to you which is outside of your control. I came across a wonderful little quote a while back which I thought absolutely said it all. It says, relax, absolutely nothing is under control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in a sense, that's what's happening for us. We aren't in control. There are so many, so many exigences in life which we're not going to be able to deal with and control and manipulate and you know, have them dancing around like puppets for us. That's not going to happen. And just to make it very clear, this thing that we bring to our experience, because it, you know, the Buddhist tradition is stressing that, of course, we bring this experience 
of unsatisfactoriness to everything that happens to us. Even when we are having pleasure, it's often tinged with the thought it's going to end. And this is something which our mind is doing. Our mind is bringing this to our experience. When we're talking about fear and dread and anxiety, and these big terms, they are mental additives that we bring to experience. And really the question remains for us, how do you like your experience? Do you like it with additives or without? And this is the additives that we bring. And this is quite different from what is actually occurring. This is made very clear in um, a, a sutta, which are the collections of the discourses of the Buddha, in a sutta which is called the Sutta of the Stone of Splinter, which occurs in one of the major collections. And it says the Buddha was walking along the road. Obviously, in India 2,400 years ago, people didn't always wear sandals, walking along the road barefoot. And it says he steps on shard of stone and it penetrates his foot and the passage runs roughly something like this in the original which is that he experiences pain but no dukkha in other words it makes it quite clear that the dukkha which is usually translated as suffering which might be the anxiety the resentment of what is happening the fighting it is something that we bring to that experience. So that we create for ourselves a world which, again, using another Buddhist term, which is often used, some of you might have come across it, but I think it's a wonderful term because it describes so much of our experience. It describes kind of as going around in circles, a circularity to our experience that we still resent the same things that we resented often when we were children. We still harbour the same grudges, we still have the same fears that we often had when we were children. And there's a kind of pattern of repetition to this. And this pattern of repetition is a pattern of habit, is a pattern of behaviour, and the way that we approach life. When we approach life in this way, in this kind of way of circularity, of just disposing of life in the same way, again and again and again and again, in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, we term this sangsara, which literally means to go round in circles. It's derived from a root in Pali and Sanskrit, original languages, which means the circularity of experience. In other words, we pattern our experience in a particular way. Fear is something, again, that we bring to the quality of our life, and it taints our life. There are so many of these powerful mental elements or dimensions that we bring to ordinary life colour the world for us. Colour it in a very, very particular way. And it seems, often, that the older we get, perhaps, the fears increase, and perhaps because of the big one, death, as being kind of something to look forward to, that that is there for us. And as we get older, we get more fearful. As we get more fearful, (coughs) 
our lives become more and more circumscribed about the known and about control and there's a narrowing down of the range and an intensity of the way that we live. Again, a phrase I've often quoted, but I think it's so wonderful. And it doesn't come from a Buddhist thinker, it comes from an American, actually Benjamin Franklin, who said, of course, that uh, what actually happens in terms of experience, and I thought it was a wonderful way of putting it, he said that most people were dead by the age of 25. They just weren't buried until 70. Because in other words, you close down your life in a particular way. Life becomes a perpetual wish-fulfilling prophecy because you pattern it in such a way that it conforms to your expectation. In other words, if we expect the worst, then we generally get it. If we expect things to be miserable, unhappy, not totally, I don't want to put a, a terribly cynical picture on this, then it will happen. And of course what happens when we see the world in this particular way and we're feeling miserable ourselves, well we don't like to keep a good misery to ourselves, we like to spread it around and make others unhappy as well. So the whole of the Buddhist path and fear and anxiety being such an important part of our contemporary experience so much of it is to do with what we bring to what is happening. Therefore, it, in a sense, the Buddhist teaching is one of the easiest and one of the hardest. That if you want life to be different, if you want things to change, which they will do inevitably, they will not remain the same. This is one of the basic Buddhist teachings. Not even a teaching just of Buddhism, it's a teaching of many, many philosophers. All things are changing. And it will occur, and it will happen, irrespective of what we do. Again, there is fear about change. Fear and anxiety of the changes, obviously, that we will go through, and the losses, and the things that we will lose in the course of a lifetime. Loved ones and things that are precious to us. But they will happen, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so the Buddhist teaching, in some senses, I say, is the hardest and the easiest, because it's saying, actually, to change our approach means to change or to transform your mind. To actually deal with what is going on for you. It's the movement from fantasies that we hold about the way things are and the way things or the way we would like things to be to actually dealing with the way they actually are. Now we all live fantastic lives. We all live fantasies. Most of our fantasies are pretty unhappy ones. All the kind of various ways we generate fantasies. All of the narratives and structures and the stories we tell ourselves about the way the world are. And that's the way we pattern our thinking. We never move, or very rarely move, into a glimpse of the open, of the possible, into something which is actually much more spacious, something which is much more comfortable, 
much more relaxed. We approach it head on. We attempt to create spaces, lack of movement, where in fact there is just movement. We see this in every dimension of life. And now I'm obviously I'm talking in generalities, so you have to apply it to your own lives and see what is going on for yourself. With what ways are you trying to create permanence? When there is only the only permanent fact is impermanence. From the oldest human structure to the oldest you know, geological formation, everything is changing. And yet we human beings are looking for permanence. Permanence in terms of our relationships with others, permanence in our relationships with the world. And I don't know if this is the case for you, this is perhaps probably one of the fears that even if it's not constantly recognised, runs through our lives. The fears that are connected with change. The Buddha highlights this very specifically as what he calls the dukkha, the unsatisfaction that goes with impermanence. When we don't, in a sense, relax into it. Even, I would suggest, even if you have been practicing meditation, albeit Buddhism, for quite a while, you might have understood and heard many teachers sit in places like this and say all things are impermanent. It's not a difficult proposition to understand. It really isn't, is it? So actually, you know, we look around, we see change. Grounding it in the practical is the problem of, okay, how do I live it? Because if I really lived it, let's not forget about the tragedy. I really, really lived it. And I wouldn't get upset when I lost something. I wouldn't get upset when I broke something. I wouldn't be clinging and grasping to things which ultimately I know are impermanent and will deteriorate and crumble and eventually disappear. When we look at all of those old human structures, and some of them dating back thousands and thousands of years, none of them have remained the same. In fact, archaeology is often a losing battle trying to preserve things, trying to create some kind of spaces when everything is changing. Again, coming back to the easiest and the hardest thing to do, the practice, therefore, of a lot of this stuff that we talk about in relation to Buddhism and meditation is the practice of letting go. Learning how to relinquish one's grasp on things. Now, we grasp after all sorts of things, don't we? Not just material objects, that's the most obvious thing in our culture. We often, and perhaps the reason why we grasp after material objects, is often to try and shore up a hole in the sense of our being in the world. Something of acuity, to fill it with something. Something we believe to be permanent and solid. And interestingly, of course, that this word in its original language, dukkha, 
give you a little bit of etymology, just to make it more interesting for you. Because the word, when you say it's suffering or unsatisfaction, all these sounds are kind of either too extreme or too flabby in English. Um, if I translate it properly, the actual word means something like a dirty, hollow space, or a dirty place to be in. Not a very nice place to be. So when you are experiencing this, which we call suffering or unsatisfaction, the fear, the anxiety, which beset us so often, day to day, sometimes minute to minute, for some people, almost literally all the time, then we are not a very pleasant place when that is occurring. And so the question, and really I've kind of given you the negative part so far, the question is how do we move out of this. How do we move out of this kind of nasty place that we find ourselves? Where we experience things in terms of not being the way that we want them, fantasizing about it, trying to create permanence, grasping, holding on, and in fact creating more and more problems for ourselves. Resisting, fighting. Not a Buddhist metaphor, but one that's used very much in Chinese Taoism, which is the most powerful element, of course, is water. It flows. It moves. It erodes the hardest thing. And in a sense, that is what we have to do and learn in our letting go, is to flow more with the way things are. rather than trying to bulldoze our way through things, trying to smash ourselves against the rocks, because all you'll end up with is a bruised forehead in doing that. So there's an element of trying to flow, to move through life with a transformed mind. I keep coming back to this. We'll circle back and back over the weekend onto this. This idea of mental transformation. Because this key thing which we're going to do later on, and that seems the main work, in a sense, of the weekend, the key tool for this mental transformation is what we loosely call meditation. It's the key of Buddhist practice, it's the key, in a sense, to living, because meditation isn't just about sitting on cushions, being in this room, being in a lovely place, it's a way of being in the world. And it's unfortunate we have this word meditation because the word in the original language does not mean that. It means to cultivate, to bring into being. Bhavana, which is the word in Pali and Sanskrit, means to bring into being, to actualize something in one's life. And so if you're trying to actualize insight, and we're moving into a different way of being in the world. If we're trying, for example, to cultivate, and there's much need of it in this world, something like kindness, then it's the movement from having it as a nice idea to being it, to practicing it. All too often we can bring to our practice, and I think this is really important to remember, a certain legacy of religiosity that one finds in the West. That sitting on cushions is a rather precious thing to do. Um, it's kind of the 
Buddhist equivalent of church on Sunday. In other words, you sit and you do your religious practice, your spiritual practice, sitting on a cushion. Actually, you don't. Your spiritual practice is out in the world. It's being with others, doing things. This is training. Sitting on cushions is a training. Doing walking meditation. Unfortunately, I'm still stuck with this word meditation, as you can hear, even though I don't like it. Walking in a particular way, as we'll do walking meditation practice, doing various vipassana, samatha meditation, are only training. What we're trying to develop is samatha, calm. Now, if you've got a fearful, frightened mind, then the first thing you need to do is learn to calm that mind, to create some space in it. And when, I don't know if it ever occurs to you, ever happens at all, but when you wake up in the night and you're anxious and distressed, worried, frightened, then what you'll notice is the rapidity of thought that's going on, the speed of it. There's literally no control over the mind. It's speeding away. So therefore one has to create some calm, actually pour something onto these troubled waters, calm it down, to concentrate, to focus. Now that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning, in a sense. Because once one has some degree of calm, then you have to do the harder work of trying to develop real insight into what is happening. And really, this practice, and I will say to this very strongly, these practices are not about belief in something, not taking on a whole ideological system. These are questions, and they either apply to your lives, obviously I'm talking as I say in generalities, but they either apply to your lives or they don't. So it's not taking a whole set of beliefs. And so what is paramount in all of this and I'll say this for the weekend, as in, if you go away and do any practice outside of a retreat centre like this, is it's the authority of your own experience that is important. What is going on for you? What is happening for you? Because each of us has different experiences. Something which might be quite crucial for one person, might be absent for another. So the first process is learning to get in touch with what is actually going on. In some senses, we're talking about fear, which is a theme, obviously, of our approach to practice this weekend. Fear and anxiety and dread and all those synonyms, in a sense, which I've mentioned. Then it's how do you experience it? In the first sense, having to recognise it to almost see it arising and possibly even at this stage to learn to accept to learn to accept where you are again we could fantasize our, you know, fantasize about trying to be in another space in another place not being fearful which would be actually the opposite of what Buddhist practice is about and that would be about denial 
of denying our starting place, of repressing our fears, the elements of our being which we don't particularly want to embrace, don't particularly want to recognize. Those things that we're often evading, trying to avoid. So this first stage is learning to get in touch, learning to accept, learning to befriend ourselves. Something we actually find very, very difficult often in the West. We're learning to like ourselves with all of the problems and all of the anxieties and everything we have. To take that as the starting place, but that is not the end point. That is the starting place for any movement, for any development. We can only change from where we are. We can't change from some idealized, fantasized idea of who we are. And remember, as I keep on keep stressing, this is about transforming your mind. We have two very strong terms in Buddhism, one of which I've already mentioned, samsara, the circularity of experience, the way we pattern our experience, the way that we see the world. It obviously issues forth in speech, it issues forth in opinions and behaviour. Often we don't see our habits. We often think our habits are us. You'll recognize it very strongly if anybody's ever challenged one. Um, you feel it's such a part of your identity that it's almost as if immutable, unchangeable. So this patterning is a way of being in the world. That's all it is. Actually, and I don't know how familiar some of you are with Buddhism or not, but often it seems that this word sansara is a place. It's not. It's a way of being. It's a way of being which is characterized by fear, anxiety, depression, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and so on and so forth. I could give you a long concatenation of terms which you could put together to describe often our experience, and some of it might apply. So that's one way of being in the world. That patterning is patterned by, by something I often refer to as the unholy trinity. And this is the thing, of course, which insight, why insight is key, why it is paramount, is because our experience, when it's patterned in this way, is driven by three forces. The unholy trinity of greed, hatred and delusion. When you think about that, pretty powerful forces at work. Greed, which is kind of craving, desire, whichever one again, word appeals to you here, connects with your experience. Aversion, doesn't have to be just fear hatred, disliking things. And being deluded about the way things really are. Now Delusion is the root out of which the other two spring. We chase after things, yeah, the hollow sense in our experience, and try and fill them up with things, often. 
to things, but knowledge and people and all kinds of ways of collecting. And when we are driven in this way, the greed, it manifests itself in craving and attachment. And then we get the problems. Once you're attached, you're afraid of losing. And then fear comes in. Again. However, and this, if you like, is a more positive, I think you're kind of the negative cell so far. Put a little bit more positive side on it. Because the Buddha is actually saying it doesn't have to be like that. And many of you will have heard of the opposite experience simply because it's a, a rock band and Freud uses it as well. It's called Nirvana. Or Nirvana in Pali. Nirvana is the opposite way of being in the world to Sankara. The forces which propel that experience of being in the world are the absolute opposite, the absolute antithesis of those which drive Sankara. So instead of greed, we get generosity. Instead of aversion and hatred, we get kindness and compassion. And instead of delusion, we get insight or penetrating understanding into the way things really are. Now you can see it's kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And the Buddha really is saying to every one of us, which one do you want? Sankara is very familiar to all of us. Because we all experience these things. We all experience the fears, the anxieties and the worries. And Dalai Lama actually is very fond of quoting a particular passage from a 6th century, 7th century Sanskrit text called the Bodhicharya Avatara. And the quotation goes around something like this. It's said a little bit more elegantly, but this is basically just a bit. If you can do something about it, why worry? If you can't do something about it, why worry? And I think that puts a great deal of insight you know, in a very in a slightly human form into our situation because there we are worrying about something we can't affect or worrying about something that's already happened. <laughs> so, again, it's learning to relax into our situation. Often, and I might say this again as a word of warning for the weekend and any of you who go away and do further meditation practice, is also don't make, I'm kind of mixing religious metaphors here, like mad, but don't make meditation practice another cross to bear. A Sri Lankan friend of mine many years ago said to me, when Western people get hold of meditation practice, they make their lives even more miserable. <laughs> Because often, we want to be perfect. That's one of the things we've schooled in, right, from being very young, isn't it? Failure is an enormous problem. You know, you worry about failing. You get anxious and fearful about failing. And so, we divide up our experience, even in sitting in terms of just sitting here, in terms of good and bad. You know, good, I succeeded. Bad, I failed. Whereas, actually, there is only the practice and the experience of what is going on. 
expectation that we bring to this experience, the actual expectation that we bring to it. And unfortunately, it's because these words generate expectations in our mind. We talk about for the advertisement in the Gaia program. Insight meditation. I can't guarantee you, by the way, at the end of the weekend, insight. (laughs) I can introduce you to some of the practices which go with the development of insight. We have calming meditation. You sit on your cushion, instant expectation, I am going to become calm. Actually, the discovery is usually quite the opposite, isn't it? And what you actually experience is not calm, but turmoil. Because that is what is actually happening. And if I experience the turmoil, am I meditating or not meditating? Well, of course you are. Because you've actually experienced what is going on. Perhaps, for the first time, have gained a glimpse into something that you've had a, a vague awareness of going on. In other words, the speed of the mind. That must have a wonderful phrase for it, they call it monkey mind. Leaping all over the place. Jumping from one thing to another. Or, we can be trapped inside spirals of thought, circularity of thought, it goes round and round and round and round in our heads. If you're glimpsing that for the first time, that is a real insight. So it's not about success or failure. Okay, you might have sold it to you as insight or calm meditation, but you've actually had an experience of something that's really going on. So the first thing, remember, our starting place, is to experience what is happening. We can't begin to change anything, to transform, to be engaged in this mental transformation, as I've mentioned a number of times, unless you have a total recognition of where you are. However, the expectation gets in the way. The expectation, and I'll say this quite strongly, expectation is the death of what is. You don't really see what is happening if you expect something else. I expected calm, but I've got turmoil. And so, then, self-fulfilling prophecy. You failed. However, reframe it. Calming meditation is about experiencing the turmoil to eventually start to slow down the mind. First, you've got to be aware of the what is happening. Of the speediness of thought, of the turmoil. Now, many of these practices are very simple, and we'll start off with a few basic calming practices before we even begin to look at insight practices. It's really trying to deal with fear, you've got to look at the circularity of it. The way it keeps coming around. You've got to be aware, example, of the way that that is particularly patterned for you as individuals. The way that it's set in motion. Now, we use the simple method of objects, as the breath, to 
keep bringing us back to the top bit. You will find, of course, and I know some of you have probably done quite a bit of meditation, but you'll find that you will drift off. I say to you, look at the breath, use counting methods to focus in on it. You will find yourself drifting away. You will find yourself observing thought, caught up in it. And I might say to you at the stage, that is fine. That is not a problem. It's not about success or failure, it's about observing what is happening. You've observed drifting off. That is what happens. In other words, you observe the difficulty in focusing and concentrating. Very big problem often for us in the West. Ability to focus on something. Why the breath? Well, that's classic meditation object in Buddhism. Well, I'd say, well, there's one really easy rationale for this. Is it's the one meditative object you've had for as long as you're alive? The breath is always with you. Also, the breath is linked to thought. Most of us breathe very rapidly, and so thought is rapid. When the breath starts to slow down, in other words, when relaxation occurs, you'll find the thought processes will slow down. Then when the thought processes slow down and you can really see what is happening, really see what is happening, then you can start to develop insight. Traditionally, in Buddhist meditation practices, these two techniques have always been conjoined. The practice of samatha, calming, concentration, and then the practice of insight or vipassana or vipassana. One is taking an object, simply taking an object, and trying to see that object without discursive chatter, without the chattering mind, or with the slowness of thought, where the maintenance of the attention The second practice is taking an object and then using the mind very skillfully to look, to analyse, to see what is really happening. I'm going to make a kind of final comment because this is one of the things I'm going to be talking about and coming back to. When we have fears and anxieties, when we're caught in this loop, of problems which I try to give you a brief glimpse into as being in a sense of our own generation then the one issue that we always keep coming back to is the ego or the self that's the issue we always come back to it's usually about me and mine Remember, the fear of losing is often the fear of losing what is mine. And that's attached to a very strong sense of me. Perhaps, again, viewing the me as a permanent entity. Quite wrongly often, and I don't know how many of you encountered this idea in Buddhism, 
quite wrongly, this is often translated in Buddhism as the doctrine. Actually, there isn't a self there. The doctrine of no self. Not so much that, it's the doctrine of what is not self. <coughs> the self, if it is occurring, is not a solid entity. It's a process. The Buddha, in order to enable us to transform ourselves, was unpacking what was going on in the process. Showing us, rather than a thing, there is a process which is you. But there is nothing fixed within that process. Now that is good news. <laughs> I might add. Because there is nothing fixed in the process. No matter what your problem is, you don't have to be stuck in it. It can always be transformed and changed. There is nobody, and using a metaphor from another religion, there is nobody irredeemable. Everybody can change. The whole transformation process, the whole change, is from fixation, when we fix ourselves on those problems, we kind of inflate them. Our fears become manifest. Almost become to be respective of whether it's a real fear or an unreal fear. Doesn't matter. You've invested it with energy, you've pumped it up, and you grasp and attach yourself to it, even if you don't like being fearful. In other words, fear becomes a way of being in the world to which you're actually quite attached. We're actually quite attached. I'm going to use a strong word this time. We're actually quite attached to suffering. Because we know it. It would take quite a lot. And this is the, the task. It would take quite a lot to persuade us to let go. That's the transformation process. The movement from this holding on. The actual word, again, just to cast a little bit of light on it, which we have for attachment, actually in the original language, means a fueling of the process. So actually when you're attached, you're actually fueling the problem. You're actually, again, investing it with a lot of energy. You've come across those monkey traps, those things they use for trapping monkeys. For example, they put something into the tube and it's quite constricted. And the monkey puts its hand in, holds on to something, and because it won't let go, it can't get its hand out. It can't get its paw out. Again. And so the monkey's trapped. That's us. We're in the monkey trap. Real caring might be in not being fearful, not holding on. We hold on because we have a strong sense of what belongs to me, to me and my syndrome. We have this first person pronoun, I, to which we think there has to be a solid reference rather than 
whole set of processes. Yet if we understand that these processes and that change can occur, perhaps it really is in the hands of every individual, we can learn to change. We can learn to start letting go. We can learn to start living through generosity, compassion, kindness, and some insight, rather than the opposite. We know the opposite, we are familiar with the opposite, and we know the create problems. The Buddha had a formula for change. And his great insight, his genius in a sense, was his discovery of causation and how much it played a part in transformation in the spiritual life. <coughs> he said, this occurs, that occurs. This goes out of existence, that goes out of existence. So if we can identify the cause which creates the pain, the suffering, the fear, the anxiety, and all of these words that I could use, again, to describe a lot of our experience in the world. We can identify the cause and eradicate the cause, then the effect disappears. Now that's not to be unrealistic and say that genuine physical pain, aging and death is going to disappear, because it isn't. The Buddha himself died. He experienced things, as I said, and I gave you that quotation from the little discourse on the stone splinter. He experienced pain. But what he didn't experience was this wanting things to be different. Holding on. Particularly holding on to fears and anxieties. It's often described in the Buddhist traditions, in quite a number of Buddhist traditions, that the Buddha is the fearless one. And many of the statues you'll see him holding his hand up, which in, in the statuary are called mudras, gestures, gestures of awakening, gestures of insight. In that gesture he conveys fearlessness in confronting the world in being in the world. Through the practice, and this I'm going to finish now, <laughs> through the practice, what we're trying to do is relax into the world in a less fearful way. To literally relax into the world. To relax into being. To being with the way things are. Particularly in relation to impermanence, which is such a big issue for all of us. Please do not underestimate it. It's an enormous issue which we confront almost daily, hourly. Anything we want to remain the same, we know will change. Knowing it isn't good enough. Being it. Being the change. The Austrian poet uh, Rilke in one of his poems, had a wonderful expression. He said, be ahead of all your partings. Be ahead of all your partings. If you know they will occur. 
Okay. I'll cease now. And uh, basically, so I don't know if people want to ask questions, make comments, there must be questions, by the way. Make comments. Um, to open this up, and then we'll do another practice to finish and start properly in the morning. Vipassana, yeah, you can do uh, quite a number of different techniques. I mean, Vipassana is really a very broad term, I might add, and it means different things to different traditions within Buddhism. A lot of the Vipassana which is practiced is really of kind of 19th century origin, and a lot of those noting techniques are very much of 19th century origin. It can be, and we'll be doing some of this, just noting very simple things, like how a sensation will change. Um, I might add, by the way, that... Uh, our psychology is very simplistic. If you've ever noticed this one, there are only three reactions we have to what happens to us, psychologically. We like it, we dislike it, and we neither like or dislike it. That's it. End of story, psychologically, for most of our experience. And so what we are actually observing, actually, how even that doesn't remain fixed. A sensation, which we go, ooh, that feels vaguely pleasant. <laughs> Sit with it long enough, we'll turn into something rather unpleasant. And then perhaps go through a neutral stage. And then go back to being pleasant again. And so it's just, and we do use these techniques now, basically. And they're very important ones. We're actually getting a real insight into the lack of stability. Yeah, so if you really want to understand impermanence, you've got to understand the simple things initially, the way they change might add even in relation to this, if you have long enough time, then it's actually looking at your fears and seeing how they don't remain the same either. They change. They have different intensities. Bear in mind one thing I said say this on the back of that question. One of the things that we're looking at in terms of the process, and this is real this is the real part of the Pasana in terms of insight, we're looking at the process. So when the mind isn't a thing. We're looking at the way it changes and how even states like fear or depression or any of these negative states that we have are not monolithic entities. They're not kind of solid. They're not fixed. They're not immutable. They're actually composed of, there's kind of technical words used in Buddhism, of mind moments which arise and pass away and arise and pass away. They're happening so quickly that it gives the impression that it's fixed and stuck. And slowing down so you can actually observe, you suddenly become aware that it's involved. What is involved are all these arisings and passings away. And they're all of different intensities. Actually, if you look at the mind in a state like depression, it might be one mind moment of real depression, another mind moment a little less back up to a very intense depression. Oops, there's a bit of joy. No, it's gone again. <laughs> and we tell ourselves a story, a narrative, which again fixes it. 
And this is what we're doing. And we do this with our fears as well. We actually invest them with solidity and strength. We abnegate our sense of experience of allowing change to occur by fixing. That was a simple question that turned into a longer answer. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I experienced, particularly more recently, I've been making more um, a deeper, more sincere effort to integrate meditation into my life mm-hmm. uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and one of the things I experienced is that I can be quite inspired and fueled by time in a place like this. And then when I go back into my life, over a period of time of trying to sustain the practice, I, I go back to this familiar place of having lost the discipline in the emphasis. And it's a bit like losing the breath within, within a practice. I lose the whole practice. Right. And I just wondered if you have anything to say about that. I mean, one of the things I'm aware of is that I, when I come back, I need to come back in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a, an energy of, of forgiveness and softness with myself. Because it feels like when I talk to other people about this issue, it seems like a very common issue for people. I would say it's probably the most common issue. That, 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 you know, even when one recognises the necessity in one's life to do kind of practice, it, one can still very easily lose the discipline and return to the familiar place. I think that's right. And I think part of the problem with this, I mean, I, I, I wasn't joking, it really is the most common problem, is how do you sustain it? Because when you come away on weekends like this, yes, you get, hopefully, an enormous top-up and some inspiration right, to go off back into your autumn lives, into your families, into your work situations, and perhaps as you say quite rightly, what up and happens is starts to gradually erode and drop away until perhaps it disappears completely. I think the big problem with this is, is because we use words, and I've used them even tonight, and I really loathe myself for it, which is we use words like spiritual, religious, practice. Now we kind of make it into something special. Sitting on the cushion is a really, really precious and special thing I do. I wouldn't say that about cleaning my teeth, which is a discipline that most of us want to do each day because we want to preserve our teeth. You know? um, we wouldn't say it about you know, getting washed or having a shower each day or whatever we do. So in a sense, it's got to come down so far into our ordinary life that it's just one of those things you do. Just like cleaning your teeth, just like having a shower and everything else. The moment I see it as this kind of terribly holy, precious thing, chances are I going to lose it. Because it's religious. It's church on Sunday again. Yeah. And, I, and the power of this culture, you know, whether we've been brought up in a Christian culture or not, it's here, it's there. That kind of religiosity is in the atmosphere. And what we need to overcome is because Buddha's practice and meditation practice, even if you don't call yourself a Buddhist, this kind of practice is really just about everyday life. That's really it. This is training, as I said. Sitting on cushions is training. So what you're doing each day you do it is you're training yourself. What you're trying to get is awareness initially, mindfulness to take out. Not just that, but to get some kindness. 
And kindness has got to start at home. It's got to start with feeling a little bit better about ourselves. Not in a kind of self-adulatory way, self-conceit or something like that, but in a way which really accepts our foibles and can accept the foibles of ours more kindly. In that kind of fashion. Now, I think to do this, to, to integrate it into daily life, is the most difficult task. It really is the most difficult task. And again, expectations play too large part of it. You come away to this, a centre like this, and mostly, I mean, the sessions are 40 minutes. Most of the sessions are 40 minutes. I wonder how many of you have got a couple of 40 minute periods in a day where you're going to sit quietly. <coughs> I would say probably very few. I mean, that would be my guess. So what you have to do is, that instead of setting your expectations of what you would like to do, you have to be realistic. On the way that you have your shower, your cleaning your teeth or whatever, it has to be, okay, how much, how little can I do in a day? Might be 10 minutes if you're being realistic. I know I can do that every day because I probably waste 10 minutes, 15 minutes or whatever it is. So you take that time and you do that day in, day out. Just like you clean your teeth. And meditation practice isn't about the big things of coming here or doing a lot on Sunday <laughs> when you do none the rest of the week or whatever it is. It's about the day in trip clean. Yeah, if we set our expectations at 10 minutes, bet your life is going to find you've got an extra five somewhere. The problem is, if we set it too high and we can't do it, it tends to go all together. You miss it one day, you miss it the second day, by the third day it's even more problematic, weak, it's probably gone completely, and you're not going to do it. As I say, 10 minutes a day, if that's realistically what you can do, and know that you can do it, then you can always build on that, if you keep that as the minimum. So again, it's about expectation. Um, often, again, we, uh, often we expect far too great things out of it very quickly. Meditation um, practice, the practice of cultivation actually, practice of cultivating insight, practice of cultivating kindness, practice of cultivating calm, is something that will only come to you by that discipline, that practice. We have to be disciplined, don't we, to get the practicalities used in our lives together. Yet this really, really important factor in our lives, which is actually to do with our mental health, to be quite honest, is our mental hygiene. That's the issue here. Um, we completely neglect. Yet it's really so important. I mean, basically the Buddha saying we all have a mental health problem. <sighs> yeah, our mental health problem is dukkha. And we bring it to every experience. Yeah, even if it's really, really pleasurable, I'm going, when's it going to over? You know, it's too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, things like that. I mean, I kind of over-egging the cake to make a point. Um, but we're doing that. And, and if we really, really want to be free, then we have to be disciplined. Yeah. But that means being realistic, too. <laughs> I can't kind of respond to your question. Yeah. Um, you said so there are two stages in meditation. First, you become calm, yep. then you get insight. Yep. I guess that insight is not so much psychoanalytic. 
Well, traditionally, I'll give you the traditional answer first of all, and then I'll kind of put it in what I can with basic terms. Traditionally, it really is understanding the teachings from a really experiential level. So when I say to you about impermanence, okay, I understand that intellectually, because it's not difficult to understand intellectually. But I haven't had real experience of it. Because actually, intellectually, my mind is understanding, but if I can say, in terms of my heart, my bodily response, I don't understand at all. Because I get really upset when I lose my pencil. So, the initial movement is actually to really understand the teaching. That's what the practice of insight is. It's a movement into really understanding it. I can say to you again, it's probably a more difficult concept in Buddhism, that there isn't a fixed an abiding self. There's nothing that can be found within us that is fixed and abiding. As I said, you know, it's the real possibility of hope and change in that way, of transformation, because of this lack of fixed abiding self. Again, I might have a little difficulty, a little, little bit more difficulty intellectually understanding that, but it's not that difficult. And can't understand. But again, I don't have any experience of it. So insight is the real experience this is the practice of that, the real experience of it. In other words, when head is conjoined to heart here. And I really say that because the word chitta, which is often used for mind in Buddhism, also has a connotation of heart. And you'll find many Tibetan teachers who say, actually the understanding of the teaching is learning to understand with the heart the teaching, or have insight through the heart here. And that's the important part. In other words, you turn it into a lived experience, a bodily experience. When I first, I'll give you a little anecdote. When I first started practicing Buddhism, which is way over 30 years ago now, and I was living in one of the monasteries, and the particular teacher who I was studying with at that time was one of Dalai Lama's tutors. I got really sick of this, because we kept doing these meditations on looking for the self, insight practice, yes. Where is the self? Keep on looking at it, keep it examining it, keep on doing this, keep on analysing, keep on probing. I got really sick of it. I said, why do we have to keep doing this all the time? And he said, well, understand it in this way, that it's a bit like losing your purse. I thought, pardon? <laughs> um, and Tibetans are great pragmatists. You know, they're really kind of grounded. And he said, well, you know what happens when you lose your purse or your wallet, don't you? He said, what do you do? You look in every possible place where it might be until you've convinced yourself you lost it. <laughs> Looking for the self is the same. That's insight. You look in every possible place analytically for where it might be until you convince yourself it wasn't there. As a solid, fixed entity. That's not to say there isn't a process that we call self going on. There's nothing fixed there. But that's the real experience of it, really understanding it. Just like looking for your (laughs) path. So it's turning really intellectual knowledge into self-knowledge. That is inside practice. Turning the original understanding of impermanence, not-self, dukkha, 
into how they're generated and how they can be eliminated. Holding on to fixed self, holding on to things as being permanent, and holding on to our dukkha. Learning to let go again. Um, so it can also, because this is, of course, a profile intellectual, that we try to get into the experience, mm-hmm. but that, for example, anger comes up, and you feel the connection of energy, mm-hmm. and like, by being aware of it, can dissipate, but also kind of insight, you could say. You can, I mean, I mean anger's not a problem really, is it? I mean, I mean, it's a problem because it's expressed usually. Um, and we hold on to it. You know, you can think of it, I mean, it's, a, it's a nasty canker, isn't it, for most of us? Because even if you don't express it, it goes inward. And often, you know, years afterwards, you're still feeling more angry than you probably were at the time when it occurred. You know, so it's really destructive and really nasty. And you can actually see it arising. And there it go. And this is what it is. This is, again, the practice of insight. It's actually understanding that all of these emotions, even the most negative and powerful of them, are actually impermanent. You know, I, I really joke about it sometimes. I say every thought and every emotion has a limited shelf life. You know, it has a use-by date stamped on it. And it comes up. And if you don't hold on to it, if you don't fixate it, if you don't, you know, track it on your flypaper mind, then it goes. And we've probably all had this experience from time to time. I, mean, I think one of the beauties of Buddhist practice, or these meditational practices, in a sense, is they're building on experiences we've often had. From time to time, we've often been really calm, haven't we? When we've been concentrating, when we've been focused on something, something you really enjoy doing. So that's not an unusual experience. Because it's not part of your life most of the time. It's an unusual experience. But we've had it. Most of them, time to time, have had an insight into really understanding the way things are. And it, you know, if you really had it, sometimes it can really powerfully change your life. Also, in terms of anger, you know, the, the example you gave me, sometimes we've seen the arrival of anger and we go to an accident and go, oh, can't be bothered. Because you've let it go before it's been delivered. And really what it is understanding, and part of this process, which we start off with summertime, by calming, is watching the process, watching the arrival and passing away of thought. Just rising and passing away, arising and passing away. That is mind. It's that process of arising and passing away. Continue with that. If you allow it. Mostly we don't allow it because we get sick, we get caught, we get taken away by it. So the training is training how to let go. Now, Buddhist practice in general, throughout all of the traditions, has never despised the idea that we have to understand. It actually breaks up generally into three dimensions, the whole practice of Buddhist practice. And I do try to make try to make this clear because often we think that you know, the meditation practice is the be all and end all. And it's obviously a key component. It's really, really important. However, first of all, it says, and there's something they call Shrutamai Prajna, which actually means you've got to hear the teaching. You've got to hear it, first of all. If somebody is saying something to you about impermanence, or sitting in this position here, teaching you something, you've got to hear it. 
A lot of our so-called hearing is probably done through reading in the West. In traditional cultures, it would obviously be done more through the medium of teaching. Then you have to go through what's called Chintamai Prajna, which actually is to understand it. You've heard it? Have you understood it? Have you reasoned it out for yourself? Does it connect with what's going on for you? So again, this is not buying hook, line and sinker into somebody preaching at you. It's actually, does it accord with what's going on for me? Can I really understand it? Does it make sense? And the third part of it is Bhavna Mai Pradna, which is actually the experience of it in practice. Now, Bhavna Mai Pradna here doesn't just mean sitting on cushions. Bhavna, by the way, if you don't know, is the term that's usually translated as meditation. Bhavna here is cultivation in ordinary life. Because that, if you really heard it, and you really understood it, and it makes sense in your understanding, has it translated in terms of action? Or is kindness still just a nice idea for you? <laughs> or is generosity still just a nice idea for you? In other words, does it translate in action? That is Bhavna. That is cultivation. That is real practice. Sometimes, when, for example, we don't feel it automatically, we understand it as good as, as a nice idea, we sometimes just have to do it. Try and be kind. Try and be generous. In other words, we have to go through the behaviour of it to see what it feels like. You know, we in the West often sometimes can sit around for years waiting for the authenticity of the moment to come over us until we feel it's really authentic for me to be kind. <laughs> you might wait a lifetime. <laughs> um, as that famous poster, some of you might have seen, okay, indulge in random acts of kindness. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, last question. Because, in a sense, there's, there's an overinvestment there. I mean, we are more than just our thoughts. If we talk about, if we talk about the notion of the self, and I'll explore this, if you don't get it tonight, I'll explore it in more detail tomorrow evening anyway. If you heard me say, the idea within practice, and you're probably familiar with it, what you're saying is the idea is that there is not a fixed and abiding self. Rather than the one entity, you actually have lots of things going on which compose the self, of which thought is one process within a whole set of processes. So thoughts are not yourself. That's not to deny that they're going on, but normally we in a sense overinvest them with importance by claiming in a sense that they are us. Just like the habit that I said earlier on, you know, we feel when somebody attacks one of our habits as if our identity is under attack. 
where it's just a habit of thought, actually. It's a circularity. It's a kind of loop that we've got stuck in. But it's not us. Because even on the most basic division of what makes up us, in terms of processes, well, the most basic way of understanding it in Buddhist practice is in terms of five interrelated processes. There is all the physical processes. There is the processes of feeling, for example. Feelings there are the ones I mentioned, like, dislike, neither like nor dislike. Then there are the processes of discrimination our ways of discriminating in the world, our ways of perceiving in the world. That varies from individual to individual. It varies with culture and it varies with language. So there's nothing fixed and abiding within that. There's certainly nothing fixed and abiding within our feelings. Um, as many people know, you know to their sort of irritation, because you know, when somebody gives you something, you say, no, I don't like that. That's all right. I thought you did like it. <laughs> you know, you've changed, in other words. So they don't remain the same. Then finally, there's something actually technically which are called sanskara, which are things I've been talking about. These are our thought processes, our habits, our propensities to do things in a particular way. It's the same root in the languages between sanskara and sangsara. And the sang bit of it is this circularity. It literally means going around in circles. So in other words, our thoughts are within that track circle. And then finally, there is consciousness and just make things a little bit more complicated in some forms of Buddhism they identify 121 different types of changing consciousness yeah. and they arise dependent on the other processes within all of that we would say there is not self in the sense that well my body is changing I've certainly witnessed it through my lifetime <laughs> changing from childhood to the age I am now and it will continue to change and everything else I've noticed my feelings changing about certain things my likes and dislikes haven't remained the same throughout my life things I disliked I now like things I liked I now dislike things I've remained neutral about I now either like or dislike and so on and so forth um, let's paint a disaster scenario so we call discrimination well discrimination has changed throughout life you know they change then from a narrow range of discriminations as a child or as a baby. You know, start off, basically, babies discriminate the world in two ways, food and not food, usually. Um, then it moves into wider discrimination through education, and perhaps I end up getting Alzheimer's at the end of the day, and I lose it all again. Um, in other words, you've gone from narrow to wide, back to narrow again. Then we have our habits. Well, of course, our habits are changing too. There's nothing fixed and abiding there. And that's what you're talking about, the thoughts, because those thoughts are habits, usually. They're dispositions, the fears, they're habits. Ways of going around in circles. The consciousness itself is always changing, because it's changing in accordance with what's changing in the other four processes. So when the thoughts are not you, it's not saying there's no you, it's just saying that those thoughts are not you. Because actually the you is dependent on the interrelationship between all those five functions. And it's just a label that we place on that. Now it's not to say there is no self, it's to say what is not self. I don't know. Does that help? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes. 
I think just one final question. I don't understand the meditation, so my question might be the same. I was wondering about the philosophy behind meditation and the way of living and insights and actually applying things in a daily life. But how do you relate that from um, practice of meditation in terms of calming the mind? What, what's the connection between the two? Because my understanding of meditation is that you don't think when you have the mind. So how does that relate to insight? Okay, well, can I correct the problem there? It's not about not thinking. Uh, calm, calm, calm mind, in a sense, is the ability to focus. There's still thought going on, but it's the ability to hold your focus on something. Now, you've all seen this, haven't you? And that's why I said earlier on that lots of this is building on things we've already experienced. Even in the life story of the Buddha, which is a, you know, a bit of a mythology, a lot of it, it says that the Buddha remembered once when he was out you know, riding, having sat under a tree and focusing and gained concentration. And gained real concentration. Now, quite different than our experience, it might be you've got a really favourite hobby and you're doing it and you're concentrating. It doesn't mean you're not thinking, it means actually you're concentrating on what you're doing. You're there. You know, if you're painting or you're playing a musical instrument or something, you're with what you're doing. It doesn't mean you're completely brain dead. Because there's still processes going on. It's just that the processes are not at the forefront of the mind. They're in the background. So you're focused in on that. Now that, in a sense, is a preliminary stage, as I was trying to indicate to you. The ability to focus. Now, if one takes what the Buddha is saying as being worth examining, the Buddha is saying we have a problem. We have a real problem. The problem is that we live pretty desperate lives a lot of the time and are fairly unhappy in doing so. That's the problem. Now if one takes that on seriously, then how are you going to unravel the problem? First stage is you've got to see what the problem is. That means focus. Then you've got to see what causes the problem. Now the cause of the problem is the insight part. First of all, you've got to be able to focus to really actually hold the issue. And then, a bit like my searching for your lost purse, see where it is by chopping and chopping and chopping and chopping and seeing until it becomes an experience. That is insight. That's when insight is generated, when it really becomes that experience. And so, I'll use a simile that's used um, in the Buddhist tradition. And I think it's, it's, it illustrates what I'm saying perfectly. It says, in order for the moon to be reflected in water, the water has to be calm. Because otherwise it will only provide a distorted image. Now, if we've got that problem, then we've got to be able to see the thing without distortion. We've got to see it without distortion. And so that's what we're doing in the initial stage, is calming it in order that it reflects perfectly what is happening. And then we can start the real work. So insights, can we be thoughts? Insights are thoughts. But they're thoughts of such a powerful nature that they're in a sense what I call embodied understanding. Mm-hmm. It's really embodied understanding. You know, it's not 
not just here. It's in a sense of a whole bodily thing. Too. You know, in other words, somebody who really understands does not just you know, think kindly, they enact kindness in the world. You know, in other words, it's there in every gesture. It's there in their bodily sense of being in the world. And that's, that's the real insight. Okay, I think we ought to do ten minutes of practice to, to finish off. Now, I'm really just introducing you to something I want you to do first session in the morning. Cause we, you know, in the first session in the morning I won't talk, I will give some instruction in the first session after breakfast. But the first session when you come in the morning I'd just like you to do this practice. This is very simple, really, really simple. It's using the breath as the object of attention, as I say, simply because it's the object that you carry around with you as long as you're alive. Now, certain traditions within the Theravada use counting methods to help us to focus. Now, if you don't need it, and you've been doing practice for a long time, just watch the breath. If this is new to you, then I say, try and use the counting. Now, what I want you to do is on the in-breath, for as long as the in-breath is, I want you to count. One, 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 one. So obviously there's going to be a large number of digits. If it's a long in-breath, a short number. If it's a short in-breath. Okay. On the exhalation, this is not controlling the breath, it's just letting the breath rise naturally and pass away naturally. I want you to count two, 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 two. Next in breath, three, 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 three. Out breath, four, 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 four. And so on and so forth, up to ten. And then take yourself back to one again. Everybody understand that? So it's not a controlled breath, it's just noting the length of the breath, using counting, one, 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 two, 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 three, 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 and so on and so forth. That's all you're doing, just using that to help you focus in on the breath. So we'll just do that for 10 minutes or so, just to finish off the evening and quieten the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.